Romans chapter number 16. Romans chapter number 16. In his final study in the book of Romans, when he was preparing to draw to a conclusion a study that spanned several volumes, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of those that has contributed much to helpful understanding of the book, penned the following. He said, I put the paper into my typewriter to begin work on this study. Suddenly my fingers trembled and I was trembling all over. I stopped typing and leaned back in my chair and looked at the paper, the typewriter, the open Bible beside me, the familiar volumes of research in my study from floor to ceiling. Was it possible? I was typing the very last of my studies in the epistle to the Romans. But far greater than any blessing that these studies have brought to others is their effect on my own life. I know that the epistle to the Romans has become the very fabric of my life. Here, I have met God so many times that it would be impossible to remember them all. Today, we come to our final message in this series that we began some almost two years ago. We began this study in January of 2022. And what a glorious book it is that we have been studying. It has mined the depths of human depravity and it has ascended to the very throne room of God. It has mined our depths not only, but it has taken us to the glory of Almighty God. It has been convicting, logical, deep, yet approachable, thoroughly enlightening, and powerfully practical. It has been more to me personally than I could have anticipated. So we now come to Paul's final benediction. And of all of his epistles, it is the longest. It begins in verse number 24 when it simply says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is very typical for the Apostle Paul. In fact, he uses those words almost verbatim in nearly every one of his concluding thoughts. However, it's as if Paul, after such a powerful presentation of Jesus Christ and his gospel, it's almost as if his own hand begins to tremble. And his pen he finds hard to put down. Why, we might ask? Because every careful study of theology always leads to an outpouring of what we refer to as doxology. Theology is not something that is left to the cold or sterile, what we might imagine, classroom. In fact, wherever theology in its truest form is found, it can't help but lead to some type of overflow of doxology where we start to simply say, God, what can I do but offer praise to you? 
Paul again brings us to no cold theological conclusion, but rather there's this emotional overflow that has to be expressed. One commentator said it this way. He said, Paul does, as it were, breathe out his soul to these Romans in praise to God. I don't know if you remember this or not, and maybe these words have yet to be offered or uttered by you. But if you have uttered them to someone that you've never said them to before, and then finally you came to the place where you offered the words, I love you, I suspect that they are not cold or sterile when they are offered. They are simply the overflow of a heart that can do nothing but offer the words. Now, we do approach those words carefully. In fact, again, I would suspect that there are those in this auditorium, those within the sound right now of my voice, who have yet to offer those words, but they are the words that are already forming in your own heart, soon to be offered through your own lips. They are those words that you have begun to see someone and then begun to know someone. And now there's something that just is almost ready to make it to the voice and then offered to another's hearing their ears. And when those words are finally offered, there is something that almost just pours out. We approach them with some trepidation, some kind of fear. We wonder, will the words and the thoughts be reciprocated? But finally, we can contain those words no longer, and they simply overflow from our heart through our mouth to those intended to hear them. And that's the idea that you get when the Apostle Paul finally comes to the conclusion of Romans. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It is insufficient. I cannot end on those words. And like one whose heart continues to speak, so does also his pen. And now if you would look with me, beginning at verse number 25, Romans chapter 16. Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. These last three verses are what we might refer to as grammatically challenging, but they are biblically thrilling. It's it's just this one ongoing sentence. If you wanted to get the basic idea of the sentence, it, it might read like this. From the first statement to the last statement, you get the idea of what the Apostle Paul's trying to say. You, you could circle them in your Bible or underline them, draw a line that connects the two. It's almost as if he is saying, now to him that is of power to establish you, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. That is the central idea of this concluding benediction. But let's pause today and let's fill in 
what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, before I finally set the pen down, before the last words are uttered, let's pause and see what is it that he draws our attention once again to. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is the glory of God's power. The glory of God's power. You and I have this natural propensity. It, it's just, I mean, we just do it. When we recognize something that is powerful, we stand back and we, we ascribe some glory to the same. And it can be in all kinds of different ways. Have you ever stood over a bridge before, on a bridge that is over top of a powerfully flowing maybe almost overflowing because of some natural occurrence, some river that is just demonstrating its power. And as you stand there and you look, and you can even hear the waves crashing and tumbling in the river, and you look and you admire the power. We here at Campus Church, we live in Pensacola, Florida. We oftentimes refer to it as the cradle of naval aviation. We say we're home to the Navy's flight team, the Blue Angels. And if you've ever been to a Blue Angels air show before, one of the things that you just stand back in amazement is, is the precision of the power. And you listen to these jets come screaming over top you. And the tips of the wings are but inches from the pilot next to them. And theirs inches from the pilot next to them. And with such power and yet such control, we stand back with jaw open saying, oh, what power. This morning, I, I stood, and I can't say that it is because of its incredible power, but because of its power and beauty. It's been ascribed power. The more people have just looked at it in amazement. I saw this morning, driving into church, a 65 Mustang. And I stood back, and I'm, I'm like, whoa, Power. My first car cost me $125. Don't laugh, okay? My first car, $125, and it was a 1969 Plymouth Barracuda. Now, if you look up the average, now this is not the 69. It really is like the, the, the early 70s, 71, 72. But if you look up the average sale price recently of the Plymouth Barracuda, the average sale price, just over $100,000. Yeah, ooh, at that, will you? Okay. So I bought mine, my 69 for $125. It wasn't in terrible shape, but it wasn't in great shape. It did have wonderful interior, uh, duct tape seats, and other such fine appointments on the inside. My first car. But I will tell you the thing that was impressive to me about the car was its power. I'm 16 years old. I have a vehicle that cost me 125 bucks. But when I was sitting still in that vehicle and I just punched the accelerator, the tires that came on it were big old snow tires in the back. Big, thick, rubber snow tires. But I'm telling you, I could make a cloud of smoke from those old snow tires. At least I... I mean, I know people who could, okay, make a cloud of smoke. 
you press that accelerator, and I'm just telling you, that thing would just, I mean, the tires would spin. And uh, it was powerful. Uh, we blew up the engine in that powerful vehicle. And I sold the car for an impressive $25 to the local junkyard. Went from an impressive $125 down to $25. And the thing that I miss about it, of course, is it was my first car, but I've never had a car, this is the honest truth, I've never had a car as powerful. What is it that the Apostle Paul begins to draw our attention to in this concluding thought? The glory of God's power. Notice what he says again, the first part of verse number 25. Now to him that is of, there's the word, power. To establish you. The Greek word, dynamai, dynamos. We get our word dynamite from the Greek word, dynamis, dynamai. He's saying there is something intrinsically powerful about the God of whom we have been speaking. The Bible records for us in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, what it says all throughout Scripture. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. And thou art exalted as head above all. Maybe you've been waning vacillating in your belief that God is all that you need. Don't be misled. Don't be deceived. God is more than you will ever need. This last Friday evening in this building, there was a very significant, a special event. It was the the capstone event of recognizing 50 years of ministry at a place on which our church resides, Pensacola Christian College. There was an event that evening or part of that event that evening that, that was one of the standout very special moments. It was when one of our members here who has also been on the faculty of PCC for many years began to walk to a piano that was situated here on the platform. Her name is Daisy Jaffe. And Daisy Jaffe began to walk timidly, hesitantly to the piano, showing the marks of a body that is tired. Someday, she, like all those who know Jesus, will have a new body. But Daisy worked her way hesitantly, haltingly to the piano. She usually drives this little scooter around and, and get out of her way if you are close. <laughs> so Daisy is moving with her cane to the seat. And, and you almost got the sense that an auditorium and those that had overflowed it and those that were watching through digital means we're, we're almost saying, oh, that's sweet. A lady that, um, that probably has been here for a while, and I hope she can play well, you know. Daisy still moving, you know. And she takes her seat, and she's seated, and, 
and comfortable at the piano. And, and then this lady that, that you think is frail and she's older and it's like, well, bless her heart. And then, boom, you know. It's like, whoa, Daisy. And, and now she's like 25 and she's all over the keyboard. And everybody's kind of like, whoa. She got skills, okay. <laughs> Do you know, oftentimes we look at circumstances around us and we say, is God able? Let me just tell you, he is more than able. This is the God of all power. This is the God who has what you need when you need it. Don't be deceived. Your difficulties, your enemies, your own past, your failures, your needs, none of them are beyond God's power. He has more than enough to do all that you need. Do you believe today at this moment in the power of God? Hebrews chapter 11 verse number 6 reminds us, but without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must first believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Do you believe that God has what you need? He is the God of power. And Paul is pausing before he, he finally puts down the pen. He's pausing to say, we glory in God's power. We make much of God's power. We want to rightly represent to give others the high opinion of God's power. We believe not only that he is, but he is the rewarder of those by his power of those who diligently seek him. God not only then has the power, notice how personal this is, him that is of power to establish you. Paul's not just making some, some grand theological statement. He says, listen, don't, don't miss this, he says. This is the God who has power. We glory in that power. But this is the God who has the power to establish you. Not only has he the power, he has the power to establish you. The word establish here means to make stable, to ground, to make firm, to fix this was what Paul initially stated when Romans opens up, Romans chapter 1, verse number 11. He says, for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. For what purpose? He says, to the end, you may be established. Same word. And now the apostle Paul, it's as if he's been speaking to himself. He says, oh, I want to be with you. I want to establish you. But he says, hey, wait just a minute. I'm not the one who does the establishing. God has the power to establish you. How many of you have ever sat at a restaurant table before that was a little wonky? You know. So you sit down and you're going to just cut a piece of food. And as soon as you, when your knife goes, the table goes with it. And it's so frustrating and, and you, you put a glass down and the table moves and, and you, the, the drink in your glass spills and it's just frustrating because all, you, you put your arm on the table and the table moves and oh, it's frustrating. 
It's interesting, isn't it, how, how little it takes to upset a table that is not rightly seated. How little it takes. I wonder at times how little of a nudge does it take to unsettle us. How little a nudge. Our, our spouse says some, something. Our children do something. Our supervisor at work. They, they institute something. The, the, the person driving past us in a vehicle that we've never met before. He says God has the power to, in a sense, balance the life. We don't have to live this life that's constantly tipsy-turvy, constantly unsettled, constantly easily jolted. It doesn't take much. All a person has to do is just set something down, and now the whole thing is uneven. This is not the God that we serve. This is the God who has the power to establish you. Not just the person that you look at and respect, not the one who said they've been such a mentor to me, not those that we look around and we expect, well, they should have that. He says God has the power to settle, to establish you. This is the idea of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 10. But the God of all grace, he's got what you need, the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that, ye have suffered a while, Yes, difficulty, challenge. Even if you're suffering a while, is this life? It's but a vapor. After that, you've suffered a while, make you perfect. Establish, there it is. Establish, right the table legs. Balance the life. He, he does what? He's gonna establish, strengthen, settle. He says it in Romans 16, 25, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Let me note duly so. You'll never be settled until you have the security of salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. If you are in this great auditorium, at this hour, at this moment, and you say, well, I don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is mine, then you cannot have the settledness that comes only through salvation by means of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Your life will continually be tossed, so to speak, like the chaff which the wind driveth away. No security, no deep roots, no ability to stand. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you cannot have the settledness that comes from the same. And might I add, if you don't know Jesus Christ, it is not his fault. He offers to you at this moment the greatest gift ever offered to mankind, the gift of God, which is eternal life. You say, Pastor, how do I get that gift? Simply by accepting. How do you get any gift? The gift is offered. That's God's part. It's, it is now to you to be a gift received. That is your part. Well, well, by what means? By faith. By faith. God, I believe your account of Jesus. He, he's God in the flesh, God who came. He came under the law to redeem those that are under the law that we might receive, you, me, the adoption of sons. 
I get to be a part of the family of God? Yeah, because Jesus Christ paid in full on the cross that was sung about this morning. That beautiful mercy tree on an old rugged cross. He died and paid a sinner's death having done no sin. So, so he proved he was God. He came physically, bodily, out of a grave three days later, never to die again. Have you ever accepted the gift of God bought and paid for by Jesus Christ? Not through your baptism, not through your church membership, definitely not through your good works, but by Christ alone. This is the glory of his power. Jude says it this way, what an incredible God. The God who not only saves you, but keeps you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. This is where Paul begins us in this benediction the glory of God's power. But let's notice, where does he go to next? Next, he takes us to the glory of God's plan. The glory of God's plan. Look further on in verse number 25. According to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The word used here for mystery, it's not intended to say, ooh, this is mysterious. As in salvation just kind of came over me in a mysterious way. That's not the intention of the word. The intention of the word mystery, it means like, okay, this is hidden until I got additional information. Okay, how many of you grew up in a time when, um, when the, the prize in the cereal box was much more valuable than the cereal? How many of you ever? Um, how many of you ever like dumped out cereal to get to the prize? Did you ever do that? Yeah, me too. Me too. A lot of you down here, shame on you. But we did it, okay? It's like, man, I got to get to that prize. And so you're dumping out cereal because there's something in there. And your mom's like, who bent up the, you know, it was him, you know, <laughs> The, the prizes that you would find in there, some of them not very great, some of them wonderful. Often on the back of a cereal box, at least back in my day, there would be something that you couldn't decipher until you got what was in the box. And so you're digging around for these, these wonderful glasses. You know, you put them on, there's a couple pieces of cereal stuck, you know, someplace. And then because now you have the lens what was always there now makes sense on the back of the box. It was always there, but I needed some additional piece to decipher the part that's on the back of the box. It's not that something was added to it. It's just now I have the ability to discern, to decipher it. This is the idea behind the word mystery. It is the reference to God's plan. It is revealed in the Old Testament, but we needed Jesus Christ to fully decipher it. One commentary said, the Old, that is the Old Testament, is the New Testament revealed. The New is the Old concealed. 
The New Testament, it's really the Old Testament revealed. Let me show you what it is. The Old Testament, it's really, like this is the New Testament, although it's concealed. And now I have both of the pieces necessary to reveal that which was a mystery. But now I see clearly this is what God was saying. This is what he was doing. Sometimes we have those moments where it's like, oh, I should have seen that. It was there all along. Paul speaks of this mystery in Romans chapter 11. He does it throughout the book. He also does this in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul says or speaks of this mystery in Colossians 1. Beginning in verse number 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery revealed in the scriptures this is profound. This mystery that, that, that we've been looking at and studying the scriptures and, and looking at the old prophets and now, oh, I see it in the New Testament. I, I put on the glasses and that which was always there, that's speaking of Jesus. This is his plan. This is the one, uh, 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 my son, God will provide himself a lamb. What does that mean? It means that there is one who is coming and, and now I put on the glasses of the New Testament and I see oh, how clear this is. That's Jesus. You know, one of the, the profound aspects of this is what we now see revealed in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is also to be revealed through you. That another person now they, they begin to look and they see, what is this mystery? What, what is it that makes you different? How is it that you can navigate through these kinds of challenges and these kinds of difficulties, and yet still there is something profoundly different? This is part of the mystery of let your light so shine before men that they may see made known to all nations. The Bible says in Romans 16, 26, made known to all the nations, how? For the obedience of faith. The mystery is made known now through your obedience, through my obedience of faith. Notice the obedience of faith. Faith alone saves. But faith is never left alone. It is always accompanied by obedience. It's why James says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that, without, that faith without works is dead? Then in verse number 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You and I who know Jesus Christ, our faith is legitimized. It's validated. Another person says that is different because our lives are different. Faith without works? What good is that? 
Essentially what he is saying is Jesus Christ is the glory of the mystery. How is it that people are going to see in our day the glory of the mystery, Jesus Christ, unless they see Christ in you? The hope of glory. Campus Church, our directive today is to remove the mystery. Well, how is their life so different? Why are Christians so set apart? Well, I'm so glad you saw. Let me share. This is the the mystery, so to speak, of of the, the, the glory of the mystery which is Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, now in case there's any question, any doubt, any wonder, he says, let's not only see the glory of God's power, the glory of God's plan, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, let me show you without reservation the glory of God's person. Verse number 27, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. He refers to God only wise, only wise. Again, as we offer our praise to the one who is worthy, we recognize that he is only wise with no deviation from perfect wisdom. One of the saddest realities of the fall of Adam's sin is that man began to rely on his own wisdom rather than on the perfect wisdom of God. Have you deviated from God's perfect plan of wisdom? His perfect plan. Well, I know God says this, but I'm going to, God, only wise. Are you or am I going to improve upon perfect wisdom? Can it become perfect-er? Impossible. God only wise. And then he makes this singular focus on Jesus. He uses the word glory once again. We're not unfamiliar with it. In the Greek, it is the word doxa. The British pastor and author J. Sidlow Baxter wrote, Jesus Christ did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show us the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me ask you just personally, does it mean more for you to have someone to say, oh, it's over there? Or someone to say, come on, let me show you when you're trying to find your way. You ever have someone come out from behind their desk when you say, can you tell me how to get to, and they said, "Uh, yeah, well, come on, let, let me show you. What is it that Jesus does? He robes himself in humanity, and he says, come on now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk with you. I am the way. John Philip said, he whose loving counsels foresaw the fall of man provided for it before the foundations of the world, foreknew us, loved us into the kingdom, and who arranges for all things to work together for our good and his eternal glory, draws our thoughts to the son of his love. 
our blessed and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God's plan established before the foundations of the world to redeem fallen man to himself through the God-man Jesus Christ. It is why the angels could say at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest. No ability to go any higher than Jesus. It's why we must freely offer to him, Jesus, our glory. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, said, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. <sighs> Amen. As our name indicates, Campus Church, we meet on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. It's the college I attended as a student back in the early 80s. For some 50 years now, my own alma mater has sung one song more than any other song as students have assembled daily for chapel. Today, that song continues to be sung by churches and believers all around the world. The poem itself was written in the late 1600s. It was written by what we might refer to, not even just by our standards, but by theirs, an extremely courageous pastor. He, he called things out as he saw them. He, he spoke publicly um, about a king who asked his mistress to come and stay where he was living. He demanded that a relative of the king follow through with a marriage proposal to a woman he had propositioned. At one point, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. Thomas Ken was a pastor, a scholar, an author who served at Oxford in the mid to late 1600s. He often wrote hymns for his students and encouraged them to sing them in their morning and evening prayers. In a, 16, in a 1709 edition of his hymns, he wrote one called the Morning Hymn. The 14th stanza says the following. Awake, my soul, and with the sun, thy daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay the morning sacrifice. And then the next four lines, it is believed, have been sung more than any other lines ever written. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To which we add a most appropriate, so be it. Amen. The more closely you look at God, the more intimately you know the person of Jesus Christ, the more you cannot help but open your mouth and say, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. If praise doesn't easily reach your mouth, it means you haven't sufficiently filled your heart. For truly, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The more you lift your thoughts to the heights of God, 
the more your soul will be lifted to the heavens in responsive and spontaneous glory to God in the highest.